And greetings. You're on Deep Background for Wednesday, June 15th. I'm Dave Helling with the Kansas City Star. Thanks for joining us for this latest edition of the podcast. With us, Scott Cannon of the Kansas City Star. Great to have you with us, Scott. Great to be here. And uh, a special guest, Jason Hancock of the Star's Jefferson City Bureau. It's great to have you with us too, Jason. Great to be here. To yak about politics and in the Midwest. Well, we want to talk, take a first a broad look at the uh, presidential race after the just horrific events over the weekend down in Orlando and get some sense. We're a little bit remo- too close to it to know precisely uh, what impact it's going to have on the race, but you do get the sense, Scott, out of the box that uh, Donald Trump has stumbled a little bit. Now, maybe he might find his footing relatively quickly, but you get the sense that his immediate reaction was not what he might have wanted it to be. Well, yeah, it's everything is a little different with Trump. You know, uh, ordinarily, after some awful thing like this, the, the, the talk of a politician is to ask for thoughts and prayers. And Trump came out, you know, what, less than 24 hours after it all happened, swinging away at Hillary Clinton, swinging away at at the president, somehow suggesting that the president almost was in league with dark forces here. Right. You know, his, his he has a line about something's going on, which he right. often recounts that there's well, a, one of his first tweets was, "I predicted this" or something similar to that, taking in essence, or at least seemingly taking some pat on the back moment for himself after such a tragedy. Yeah, but also goes to his pattern of of. I'm going to say what I think rather than what a typical strategist might suggest. And I think that's always been his appeal, right, is that he's a – agree with him or not, he says what he thinks at a moment. And, and people might say, well, maybe think a little bit more about what you're, you're, how you're looking at a, a problem. Yeah, yeah. You think so, there's something to that, Jason, that over a longer time frame – some of the if the campaign becomes about terrorism that might help Trump in a way uh, across the country or not I think if he could get out of his own way it's possible but he demonstrated no ability to do that in reaction to Orlando I mean when you're when your first inclination is to pat yourself on the back and say that I think he even said something along the lines of no one else saw this coming no one else could see that there could be terrorism like he somehow discovered um, (laughs) global terrorist threats yeah, I, I just I can't see that being. Uh, I, I've read a lot of things that said that if he could he could have used this moment to reframe the entire debate about national security, call Clinton's credentials into question, you know, point to some of the mistakes made in the eight years of the Obama administration that maybe she was a part of, and really kind of finally define himself in a way that wasn't embarrassing. But instead, he like. Scott said, started making implications that maybe the president was rooting for the terrorists or working with the terrorists. And then he's always done this, but he did it pitch perfectly this time. He does this sort of dog whistle stuff. And when the press notices it and calls him out on it, he Back screams away. at them for being right. unfair, and you saw the Washington Post get it this time. So. Right. I, I want to come back to that, but one of the things we've talked about a lot is that the only thing that could upset the trajectory of the race that we can see is some unexpected event, right? I mean, that's what we've been talking about all along, that somehow some sort of incident like this would be Trump's only real hope going into the November election. Now we've had that incident. So does that teach us anything about whether or not similar incidents might upset 
the race if it happens in August or September? Because I, you know, I think the conventional wisdom is he needed something like terrorism to take the focus off his own lack of a record or inadequacies or rhetorical excesses. He got it, and he still fumbled, maybe. Yeah, I think it's, you know, this happened in early hours of Sunday morning. It's it's still only Wednesday morning now. So to think that that his Monday stumble, if you want to see it as that, is determinative, I think is premature. She's essentially running for a third term of the Obama, Obama administration. Right. And if he comes on saying, I'm the strong man who's going to crack down on bad guys in a way that the folks who are in charge now haven't, maybe in the long term that still works for him. Right? Yeah, I mean, yes. I, I do think that there's some sense that we're learning that he doesn't have the rhetorical chops to deal with things that might be helpful. I mean, he, the, the, our whole, whole assumption is that when he got a break, he would be able to exploit it, and he hasn't. I mean, well, he, he doesn't seem digging himself a hole a little bit. And he doesn't have the the, the deep grasp of policy either. I mean, he's essentially said the solution here is to keep out Muslims. Well, this this is a guy who was born in New York City, and what his motives are are were are really murky. He you know he declared allegiance to ISIS on his 911 call, right, but right. now there's reports that maybe he was a self-loathing gay man and this was some sort of tortured right. reaction to his position in life. It's, it may never really be clear what the guy's motives were, um, but you know ISIS has, has made a point of encouraging people to do this sort of thing on their own. So, but but he's basically offered one policy thing: a, a ban on Muslims, and even that was sort of big. He was he was talking about um, we should ban people from coming to this country from places that have a history of terrorism. Well, I guess that would shut out people from Northern Ireland, right? And, and, wow. and, and all yeah. sorts of regions around the world. It, it be, it, it, his, there's not much specific there, so you sort of fill in the specifics for him all the time. And then when you do that, it, it's easy to set up a straw man like I just have with Northern Ireland. Right, right. Um, but to tear apart whatever he's saying. I, I was also interested, Jason, that um, there was a sense that uh, uh, Right after the incident, um, uh, Donald Trump said, well, I'll be the best person for the gays, and, and <laughs> I'm better than Hillary on LGBT. Uh, and, and then you also heard a little bit of, uh, today, I saw a tweet from Donald Trump, I'm going to sit down with the NRA and talk about banning gun sales to people on the no-fly list. And, you know, that, that isn't really the safe harbor for most Republican candidates. So it, it, it scrambles it from that direction, too, doesn't it, that, that his statements, you know, are not typical Republican statements on the far right, and, and that might cause him some problems. Right, because I think a lot of times if something like this happens, you would think it could galvanize the Republican base in a way that it's not going to this time because it's Donald Trump. He can do the strongman routine, but this, this act of terrorism involves so many different facets of our culture war now whether it be gay rights, whether it be gun control, and he's not... Mental health is in there, too. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's not in his wheelhouse 
if you're trying to rally your base and, and right. scare your base into coming home, and it hasn't worked so far. And, for and more fundamentally, it's not in his wheelhouse. If it's complicated, if right. it's if the answers are potentially contradictory, if there's a, a meshing really of uh, competing interests, that's just not Donald Trump really. It's yeah. also in a, in, a, in a way sort of refreshing. The thing about Trump is that he doesn't revert to some pre-printed dogma. Uh, you know, it's a little off the top of his head, right. which gets him in trouble and makes you dubious sometimes of what he's suggesting. But it's 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 it, there's no de facto default position to fall to. It's it's his own thinking, not not falling on tradition alone. Yeah, let's um, uh, wrap this up by talking a little bit about the Democratic likely nominee, Hillary Clinton, last primary. Uh, of the season last night in D.C. She met with Bernie Sanders. There's some negotiations going on. We said this last week, Scott, but I think it's true uh, when Steve Kraske and I were chatting that she's had a couple of pretty good weeks. And you saw some chatter today that one of the good things that's happening is that she seems to have uh, centered her rhetoric. You know, it's not so it doesn't seem so aggressive. It seems confident. It seems relatively calm. Which provides a contrast with, with uh, Donald Trump. You think that's yeah, right? I, I was interested. So she meets with Bernie Sanders last night, and he's basically insisting that um, Deborah Wasserman Schultz go um, be taken down as the party chair. I, I think the fact that Sanders is holding off in terms of endorsing her is now getting to be a little bit costly. Yep. You know, he'll come there eventually, but. The fact that he's taking his time doing it, I mean, if he came out now, he could, it would reinforce the idea that, that the Democratic Party has put forth and that some old guard Republicans have put forth that a Donald Trump candidacy is, or presidency is a really scary thing. The longer he waits to get there, the less dangerous, he's sending a signal, less of a signal that Donald Trump is a really dangerous thing. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think that you know, it's a very delicate thing for guys like Sanders because I do think he has a little bit of leverage on things he wants now, like not just Schultz, but I think, for example, there'll be a real effort to get rid of superdelegates in the Democratic Party. I think some people are pretty uncomfortable with that. And he has now some leverage to get some of those things, but eventually that fades away, right? I mean, you can, if you hold out and hold out and hold out, at some point she can say, well, the hell with you, I'm walking away. <laughs> and so he has to really be pretty smart about what his timing would be. Yeah, and I think when Elizabeth Warren came out and endorsed Clinton, that took away some of his – I mean, she's the darling of the same right. people who are supporting Bernie Sanders. That's going to give them – if she's on board, that's going to give a lot of his supporters the cover they need to kind of swallow hard and, and get in line with Hillary Clinton. Plus, I think I heard from a lot of people who were surprised how overcome they were with this idea of the first – female nominee of a major party like the history of that is starting to set in for a lot of people that maybe you know were a little lukewarm on Clinton before and I think since Sanders has been sort of slow playing this you know he started arguing about trying to convince superdelegates he was really starting to tarnish himself I presume at some point he's going to realize it's time you know, you've exacted as much leverage as you right. can. And, and if he doesn't and, and if he doesn't figure that out, then he has no leverage. Then it goes right. away. I had a long conversation with someone fairly close to Ted Cruz yesterday, uh, who we both know, all know. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, they're trying to play the same game with the Cruz endorsement for Trump if there's going to be one, that there are certain things that Cruz might want. Now, you know, Trump's continuing difficulties might 
preclude any endorsement at all. But it, there is this interesting balance about you have to go at the right time to get what you think is important. And if you wait too long, then the candidate just walks away and then you have no leverage whatsoever. In the end, do any of these people get anything that matters? So, so if Sanders gets rid of the superdelegates, superdelegates have yet to actually matter. And, and it's harder picture because in the end, the, 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 the popular vote of the primaries tends to, that's the direction the superdelegates go anyway. If Deborah Wasserman Schultz well, is taking down as party chair, you know, just throw somebody else in there. I don't know what Cruz is going to ask for. If it's something on the party platform, big deal. Nobody looks at the party platform except political reporters and right. members of the committee during the convention. It's forgotten in a week. Well, not, not only that, but I think Sanders was, I, I heard him this morning talking a little bit after the meeting about how the superdelegates, you know, 400 pledged delegates were in her column before voters were ever went to the polls. But of course, superdelegates as Sanders has argued for weeks, can vote whenever. And so a pledge eight months ago is meaningless. And Scott, you're exactly right. Had Bernie Sanders won primary after primary, the Supers would have flipped like crazy. They did that in 20, uh, 2008 when, uh, when uh, Obama and Hillary were running against each other. On the other hand, th you know, the superdelegate, uh, the use of superdelegates does seem kind of I don't know, anti-democratic. It's in a little way. offensive. I mean, it's a little man, weird to, in essence, say everybody vote, but if the heavy hitters don't like what you want, right. we're going to turn that over. <laughs> and so, what I think guys like Sanders want and Cruz want is, you're right about the platform, you're right about endorsements, you're right about, but it's the symbolism of it. Look, I, I raised all this money, I worked, I was up all night, I traveled all over the country. I need to get up in the morning and say, well, at least I X. At least I got rid of her. At least I got rid of supers. At least I got a $15 minimum wage and not a $12 minimum wage. It's also often more personal than anything else. Yeah, I think the difference between Cruz and Sanders, though, is Cruz still sees himself as the heir apparent. He thinks once, if and when Trump craters, he's the guy that could be the nominee in four years. Where, right. I mean, this is it for Sanders. He doesn't have, like, a second act. He's right. going to go back to the Senate and, and finish out his career. I guess in some ways that probably makes him more dangerous because he really has nothing to lose. He's just he wasn't a Democrat two years ago. He doesn't have to be a Democrat next year. Right. Um, so maybe that can maybe that's helping motivate him to do some things that otherwise he'd sit down and, on. And, so. and by the way, and to add to that, he's kind of a cranky guy. I mean, you just I've had a chance to interview him during his uh, Kansas campaign and. Uh, it wasn't a long encounter, but he, he's he's a little grumpy. And I think after, you know, everybody said after the race, oh, it takes so long, you got to give him space. I think there's something to that in a way that that you after working that hard and you know eating bad food and being up and 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 coming this close. Uh, you know, if he had been blown out, I don't think it would have been an issue. But I do think he thinks that at least he came relatively close to winning the nomination. It's hard to walk away without something tangible, even though the rest of us know it isn't that tangible. Right. And he's also had to listen to the Clinton campaign talk trash about him for months. So it's the thing you get once you're inside a campaign is that outsiders don't appreciate is the visceral almost hatred of the other side, even yeah. in, in intra-party stuff that develops just because you're competing for the same thing and you you always feel like you're being treated unfairly by the other guy. Yeah, and I think just generally, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, the local uh, uh, framework for the race here in a minute. But I, the other thing is people have no conception of how hard it is to run for office. Yeah. I mean, it, it, 
you sleep in strange, and presidential is just off the charts, but even for the senator or for governor, you sleep in strange beds. Your Saturdays and Sundays are not your own. You, you know, you can't go to the movies. You can't, you know, you're eating bad food and you're traveling in a bus. Suffer fools everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. Begging for money all the time. On the phone. And so after you invest that much sort of personally in any race, it's hard. I'll never forget in 1988, uh, Dick Gephardt was one of the Democrats who, who uh, won. I think he won Iowa in 1988. And so he was one of the front runners. And then uh, for whatever reason, Michael Dukakis pulled away and he had to drop out. And, and the decision point for Gephardt was he had to file for reelection as a House member and had to go to Jeff City to do it. And everybody, that would be the moment that he would, in essence, drop out of the race. So I went down there to cover, and a bunch of other people were there. And I pulled, I talked to him for just briefly, and I said, "You know, you must, you must be glad this is over. That you know, you now you've, it's, you don't have to sleep in these strange beds and stuff." And he said, "You'd, you'd be surprised." He said, um, uh, "You actually grow to love it because you get all the attention, and people are hanging on your every word, and you're in the papers every day, and you're having to make strategic decisions." And then it's over. And then it's literally, you know, back to back to cutting the grass on Well, Saturdays. isn't that what, what Bernie and Cruz are dealing with? Is they're Precisely. on the cusp of not mattering nearly quite so Precisely. Much. And I think That's they have to. For and, and for the winners, they have to sort of manage that, all those complex emotions, and then do the real politic of it, which right. is what it means going forward. Jason, what do you hear from legislators that gives you any sort of insight to what might happen in Missouri? Uh, how, how do the Republicans in the legislature feel about Trump? And the Democrats on Clinton? Well, the Democrats are sold out on Clinton. I mean, they're on board, but the Democratic Party is so unorganized, you know, in Missouri that it's 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 big strategy going in. And we reported on this a couple weeks ago, I guess, that is that they were hoping that Trump was a nominee in the hopes that there'd be a tidal wave that could help carry them to a few extra seats here and there in the House and the Senate. Um, they don't really have any hopes of, of getting beyond that. As far as Trump, it's a complicated relationship. A lot of the, the big heavy hitters in Missouri Republican politics, strangely enough, weren't for Cruz, which had Jeff Rowe, the uh, Missouri political guru running his campaign. They were on Team Rubio. And Rubio really didn't stand much of a chance here, despite all that. It'll be interesting to see the state party, the Republicans are so strong and is so well-funded that they can, all, they can sort of absorb the hit, even if Trump is the nominee. Um, I think where you'll feel it more is at the statewide level, where you see these guys trying to run away from him or trying to answer for the, the sort of off-the-cuff has, things has that anybody, Trump says. Has anybody endorsed him fully, embraced I, him fully? Not that I've heard. Uh, I mean, statewide? I, have I, you heard any statewide candidate or even a, a, a House or Senate, state Senate uh, candidate say, boy, I'm really on the Trump team? I'm sure you'll have a lot of those state rep guys that would say that. As far, the closest that's come at the state level, John Bruner said, I'll be happy to campaign with Trump if he comes here to campaign with me. That was the closest <laughs> that came to somebody being on board with Donald Trump. The rest of them were like, well, you know, you get a lot of, well, I'm, I'm running my own campaign. It's up to Donald Trump what Donald Trump's going to do. And so. yet don't we think that Trump will carry Missouri? I we would think so. I, you, you see some you know, evidence if the, the national election goes far enough for Hillary, which we don't know that it'll happen, that that it, Missouri becomes in play. I mean, we just had a poll out. Uh, Bloomberg yesterday has her up 12 points nationally. It's pretty significant. I saw, you know, we've talked a lot about the high negatives on both of them. The most recent poll must have come out yesterday, and I can't remember who, whose poll it was, but had 
her negatives at 55 and her positives at like 43, his negatives were 70. Yeah. <laughs> which was shocking because I, you know, more recently her negatives were close to his. Well, now he's he's 70 and 29, 29 positive. So I I think you can see Missouri in play maybe in that scenario, which puts the blunt race yeah. maybe in play. Um just because of the awkwardness of that relationship. Yeah, um, the, there was an early, early poll about three or four months ago that showed actually Hillary Clinton beating Trump in Missouri. I think that, you know, you can discount all of that because the campaign was far from engaged at that point. But I do think we forget that uh, while things have changed in Missouri, Barack Obama came a few thousand votes short of John McCain in 2008, eight years ago, and certainly McCain was a different kind of candidate than Donald Trump would be. And Hillary Clinton is probably more popular in Missouri than Barack Obama would be. Is that right? And so it might be competitive, more competitive on that basis. Plus you have, you know, the energy behind Coster, whatever, Chris Coster, whatever that turns out to be for the Democrats, and some energy, you know, down-ballot energy that might help uh, Hillary Clinton a little bit. But it's just interesting to me that we would today think of Trump as the favorite of Missouri, and yet nobody wants to line up and <laughs> and really be with him. You think that'll change, Jason, or not going forward? I think the problem that the Republicans around the country are going to have to deal with, and, and Missouri included, is that whenever Donald Trump says something, they're going to have to answer for it. And he's just so unpredictable that you can't plan for right, it. Right. And so... If Hillary Clinton is just close, if it's competitive, if you see that Hillary Clinton is going to spend some time or money here, I think you're, we're talking about a pretty bad election for Republicans nationwide, but especially yeah, in Missouri. Missouri. One other thing we uh, should know, David Goldstein of the Washington Bureau for the Star wrote a pretty interesting story Sunday about uh, social conservatives, evangelical voters, particularly in and around Springfield, which is, you know, Greene County, which is so important in the state and there was a lot of nose holding there saying yeah we'll we'll be for Trump that's why I think this whole thing after the Orlando shooting where he says I'm going to be you know more you know work harder for LGBT issues than than Hillary might you know might backfire in places like that you know yeah I think there's, uh, there's a, a lot of its finger to the wind but right there's a lot of the sort of religious moral issues on running through that, the one, the LGBT issue, which isn't particularly popular in, in rural parts of Missouri or Kansas. There's a poll that suggests right. Kansas, of all places, might be in play. Um, and also sort of the, his ban on Muslims raises some alarm for religious minorities. So you see Utah, because right. of the Mormons, is in play. So, and Mitt Romney is just hammering away against right. Trump. That, so helped, it, that hurts him in Utah as well. It, it, he changes the map in a lot of ways. Do you, but do we really, and we'll wrap up with this, do we think Kansas is in play? Uh, you know, maybe it's the other, you know, Kansas is such a unique state now because of Brownback's, Sam Brownback's problems and the continuing publicity about the difficulties that Republicans are having. So that, that, that uh, yardstick is difficult to completely understand. But if Donald Trump is really in trouble in Kansas, he, he, he'll be wiped out nationally. I mean, that's a Lyndon Johnson, Barry Goldwater situation. I just have a hard time believing that's true. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe well, maybe not. Uh, only in the sense that if you've got what's left of the moderate Republican wing of the party, you could see them not voting for Trump. 
um, holding their nose and voting for Hillary. Or just Johnson County. I mean, it's yeah, hard. If you're skipping talking, that presidential thing and then going all the way down. And, and really, that's where uh, at, at the end of the campaign, I think Donald Trump will be in the biggest trouble in counties like Johnson County, where you have sort of moms and dads, sensible people sending their kids to school. Educated. Educated, uh, you know, making a relatively decent middle class salary. And they look uh, at a guy like Trump and they're just not convinced that he could sit behind the desk in the Oval Office. I mean, that's just a sort of a threshold thing. And th at that point, you get beyond issues and, you know, terrorism and, and all the other things. And it's just much more of a visceral thing. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this offline is this idea of does Donald Trump really want to be president? And I think he does. But when you have him talking about things like spending resources in California and New York, to incredibly expensive states that a Republican is never going to win. Is that going to hurt him and down-ballot races in places like Missouri, right. in places like Kansas, where that money, that time, that just a presidential visit could, could really assist those other candidates? He's wasting his time in New York or California or Scotland. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's... There's there's not just ideological problems with Trump. There seems like oh. there's strategic issues with him well, as well. Well, and just technical issues. Can't raise money, doesn't have any. I, I was stunned during the primary season. I tried to reach out and write some stories about the Trump effort in Missouri and Kansas. We all did. You couldn't find them. I mean, literally, I finally found the state director in Missouri. I forget the name, but he couldn't comment on the record, couldn't even give me sort of an innocuous, yeah, we think we'll do well, well here quote, and I wrote, I wrote the national office and said, can you, you know, let this guy talk to me? Nope, can't have it, Donald <laughs> or nothing else. That's blocking and tackling. You don't have an infrastructure. You can't raise money. You're not buying time. You're not reserving time now for the fall, for the fall campaign. Well, if you're not uh, collecting lists of registered voters and that get out the vote stuff, stuff. So if he's not doing get out the vote efforts for his campaign in Missouri, that's bad for Roy Blunt. Yes, right? no, without question. Uh, quite apart from what the message might do for the Blunt campaign. All right, we don't have you here very often, Jason, so let's just wrap up by asking you sort of a Missouri-centric question. <laughs> what uh, What's the governor going to do with the gun bill that's on his desk? Is he going to veto it, not veto it? Give us a – and what other big decisions should we be watching here in the next couple of weeks? Well, he's he's got sort of a mixed record on guns. He's signed some. He's vetoed others. I can't see him signing this one. I mean, a couple of years ago Why he Why don't you vetoed. explain for the listeners who don't know what right. it does? Uh, it's, it's sort of this wide-ranging gun bill it passed on the last day of the session. It's a lot of things. It's the, the two big ones are it's got a stand-your-ground law, which allows you to use deadly force without the duty to retreat. Um, it takes away the need to have a permit or training to have a concealed firearm. It also does things like it expands the castle doctrine to guests in your house. If you have a babysitter, they can shoot and kill an intruder, <laughs> things like that, little things. Um you know, Nixon vetoed an open carry bill a couple years ago, got overridden. So he has shown that he would veto some of these things. I mean, the city, the city people, St. Louis and Kansas City, are just so vehemently opposed. One presumes that a gun bill like this is going to sail through, even if he does veto it. You know, it's, it's always possible some things could shift. I mean, it is pretty, like I said, wide-ranging. It came on the last day. There were people that weren't very happy that it came up on the last day. It sort of seemed like a reaction they had lost the night before on a big veto override right, right. on a union bill. So I think that'll be a, a fight that we have in September. Like I said, I just I can't see the governor signing it, but, you know, he is Jay Nixon, and he does have that uh, oh, Second there, Amendment cred that right. he likes to hold on to. Right, so. and, and he, you know, Chris Coster, 
will have to at least hold his own with some of the law and order yeah. people if he's going to prevail in well, November he's, as well. No matter who wins this fall, the, 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 the governor will be further to the right on guns than Jay Nixon, which is saying a lot. You know, Coster said he has no, he saw no reason to veto this thing. I followed up with his campaign to clarify, thinking maybe he just said that off the cuff. And they're like, no, we have no additional comment. We stand yeah. behind that. Any so. other bills we need to be paying attention to that are, are awaiting his signature? Uh, you know, there's a few things dealing with thing, like open records that uh, are floating around out there. He'll probably end up signing those. I think the big things that people are watching, you know, we wrote about this last week. Maybe this week it also blends together. <laughs> um, there's a bill to change the makeup of the Clean Water Commission. That was right, sort of snuck right. in under the radar. Nobody paid any attention to it. Now and it's now everybody's up in arms about it a little bit. And then there's a bill that uh, oh, it's just escaped my mind. But yeah, there's a few other things that are sort of But the gun thing there. is what we're watching. Yeah, the gun thing is probably the biggest thing that hit his desk this year. So. Right. And after Orlando, it becomes a big deal. Well, well, we're, are we going to have a pot thing on the ballot and will that affect – any of the statewide races just because it, of who it might draw to them? It sets up a good year for Democrats. They've turned in the signatures for medical marijuana. It's very limited, but it's, you know, it would draw out a type of voter that's going to help someone like a Hillary Clinton, the Democrats statewide. Is it the Bradshaw uh, measure? No, or this is, is a different one? one. This is yeah. by uh, some of the more yeah, grassroots right, groups. Right, right. So that could be if their signatures are verified, that could get on the ballot. You have voter ID on the ballot this fall. You know, a lot of people think that's an 80% issue, but it lost a couple of years ago in Minnesota. There's some thought that that drives votes, that drives voters who oppose it a lot more than voters who support it. Like, if you think it's disenfranchising people, you're more likely to turn out to right. fight it. So may, these are some of these ballot issues that maybe could help Democrats as well kind of draw out their base. Plus, it's a constitutional amendment, so people right. p- tend to pay a little bit more attention to that than right. statutory changes. Yeah. And, and organized labor is going to be all over the place this fall because they know if Coster's not governor, then we're all right to work state by this time in February. Yeah, so. well, correct. Jason Hancock with the Stars. Jefferson City Bureau, thanks. Scotty, as always, Scott Cannon yep. with the Kansas City Star. I'm Dave Helling. Again, thanks for listening. Um, subscribe, give us comments. You can find this on iTunes. We enjoy chatting with you once a week, and we'll be with you next week. You've been on Deep Background.